Acts 13, verse 13. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 13, verse 13. But before we get there, I think it is, for those who are taking notes, it's important for us to, I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures today, probably more than normal. Uh, And it is important that you write those references down. You don't have to keep up with me. That's fine. Uh, I know some of us are like, slow down. I can't. Uh, And so just write them down, and and then you could go back and uh, hopefully meditate on them. If you're bored in your quiet time, you won't be after today uh, because you'll get these scriptures and you can take them into your time with the Lord, which is the purpose really of Sunday morning, and then to take it those same scriptures into your time with uh, others, which we call discipleship, iron sharpening iron, and then also uh, as we take that to the streets and let this message embolden you to preach the gospel. So the title of the message is Preaching Christ, or really preaching that points to Christ is a better way of saying it. So the four points we're going to talk about Preaching continued it, it continued in the book of Acts. That is God's primary way of sharing his message with a dying and lost world. Number two is that the Old Testament points to Christ and our need for him. The Old Testament points to Christ, but it also, as you read the Old Testament, it points to the fact that we need a savior. As the Jews read the Old Testament, they realized we need a Messiah, We need someone to come to deliver us from our sin. Number three, prophets also point to the coming of Christ. And then four, Jesus points to our salvation. How many know that we shouldn't come into church to be entertained, but to be equipped? We come here to to actually want to feed on the word of God. We should come hungry. And when you get up in the morning, one of the things you should do is, is pray and ask God, God, would you give me a hunger this morning? Not to be entertained or to allow my ears to be tickled, although you can find many churches that do that and would gladly tickle your ear for money or for fame, or whatever their motive is. But here, we want to equip the saints to do ministry but we also want to nourish the family of God. In 1 Peter 5, it actually says that shepherds are to do one thing. Actually, frankly, it's to do two things. One, it's to feed the flock, and two, it's to protect the flock. And you should want to be in a church that does those two things. Because ultimately, it's not about the leader. In fact, 1 Peter also has an answer to that, Five, chapter 5 where Peter, after he heard Jesus say, feed my sheep, he actually took Jesus at his word, began to live it out, and then exhorted the people and said, hey, you new shepherds, do not be in leadership to lord it over. Don't be in leadership for the purpose of controlling people. In fact, he also said, do not be in leadership to... Uh, not only lord it over, but for the paycheck. Don't be in it for sword gain. 
Don't be indifferent. Don't be apathetic, he said. But rather, make sure that week in and week out, you give your life to feeding the flock and protecting the flock. And that happens simultaneously in every season. And so, how many are you thankful? Uh, how many are thankful that Luke is a very detailed gospel writer? He wrote the book of Luke, and then he also wrote the book of Acts, as we see. And one of the things that he records early is he records the messages of Jesus. You see that in Luke 4, when he gets into the synagogue, he records the synagogue messages. And I'm thankful that we have these transcripts of what they preached. And of course, in the book of Acts, you've seen Stephen thus far, Philip, Peter. You've also seen now Paul. Paul is the new hero from 13 and all the way to 28. We're almost at the halfway point. Next week, we'll be at the halfway point for this long 28-chapter series. But it's worth it because I believe the church needs another, needs again a re-up in the vision of what the church is called to be. And that's why we're doing this series. And so do not uh, neglect that. Don't just come, oh, I know that. I, I already know these. I've read this so many times. There's always something new you can learn. And so we read now Paul is the new hero. And Paul preached in Damascus. He preached three years in Arabia. He also preached in Antioch, as you saw back the early part of 13. And now we find him preaching in the synagogue and we have that transcript and we'll go through that today because I believe it's really important. And those who listen carefully, it'll be rewarding at the end because that's usually when Paul drops the bomb, the truth bomb. And so, but his, you know, Paul's calling to be a preacher, he understood that this was the bread and butter of church. He understood that no change is actually going to happen apart from the preaching of the word. It, it was important. He understood that it was, it was his greatest pleasure. He knew his calling. It was very clear that it wasn't to entertain people, but it was to equip people so that they would know who Jesus truly is and so that they can not only read the truth, believe the truth, but they would be a people who actually love the truth, which is the goal. I don't want anything else but this church to really love the truth. Because when you do, you, you, you make it so a part of who you are, your life, that you begin to embody that and live that in such a way that your life will transform and you'll be a part of transforming so many people's lives. There's nothing like it. 1 Corinthians 9.16, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. He says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Do you feel that way? Because Jesus said to go make disciples and preach the gospel. So not only is it Paul's, I understand the vocational ministry. I get that. That's another topic. But all of us in this room are called to preach the gospel. And we should have it as a, as a goal and uh, uh, really emulate what Paul's Thoughts here that we should be under compulsion. Where we can't help it but preach the gospel. We're compelled, he says in another way. He's compelled by love to do this. This isn't a job for him. He's certainly not in it for the paycheck. 
Acts 26, 15 to 20 says this. I said, who are you, Lord? This is a more detailed of Acts 9. He's telling his testimony when he's on trial. He said, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God and they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I might be on trial here according to your law, but I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do according to his law. And that's important, especially as we move into this new season with our culture. But kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In other words, I've just been called to preach the gospel. And you may have another opinion of that world, but that's what I'm called to. And you have authority to do that. You have God-given authority. In fact, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, and guess what? I give it to you. There is no higher authority on this planet but the authority of Jesus. That is so important now that we move into a very different season. It's been very evident and clear. Uh, who's the boss? And that's Jesus. And there is a power battle. There always has been. In fact, way back before the world even began, there was a power battle between God and Satan. And now there still is even today. So 1 Corinthians 1, 17, 21 and 23, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Gentiles, foolishness. People are always trying to change that message to fit more the cultural standard. And Paul's just saying, I mean, whether you got the Jews on one side who want always a sign, they did that in Jesus's time. You remember that? They're always asking for a sign. He's saying, you want a sign? God is standing right here before you. If you don't see that, I'm not sure what else you're going to see. And they didn't even see when he did the signs. I mean, he did the miracles. He fed the 5,000. He fed thousands. He, he, he literally just shooed a demon away out of a, out of a boy, right? I mean, you remember him uh, healing people of leprosy, of all these diseases, uh, Peter's mother-in-law uh, for, of a fever. I mean, he, a countless, and they were never satisfied. They always wanted more, and they missed Jesus. Paul said, I'm not changing that message just to fit their ears. That's not, my, that's not the goal. The Greeks, they want, they, they want wisdom. 
They want to be wowed by the speech. And Paul's saying, you may think I'm not all that impressive in person, but my writings are clear. I don't want to make anything known among you but Christ and him crucified. We've got to be a church that hides behind the power of the gospel, not our own wisdom, not our own fanciness of speech, not trying to figure out a way in which they'll like Jesus more. If you try to do that and talk them into the kingdom, then some fool will try to talk them out. And if it's that easy as some sort of Christianity revolving door, <laughs> then I don't, I'm not signing up for that. If someone could twist my arm in, then someone could twist my arm out. I'm not interested in that. I think that one of the most glorious uh, doctrines of the church is the preservation of the saints. In other words, that we once saved, always saved. The foolishness of Arminian theology is that, oh, if I get, if I get saved, then somehow if I, if, I, if I do things that are maybe bad or I fall into a dark hole of unbelief and I might lose my salvation, that's foolishness. Terrified, if I could, am I going to lose it? Am I going to lose it? That's not God. In fact, we need a higher vision of God. God is able, his, his arm is not too short to save Does he save you and then the arm gets shorter? Does he shrink <laughs> somehow? No, <laughs> it stays the same length. If he saved you, it saves the same length 59 years or 85 years through your whole life. You know, God has promises to you. They're yes and amen. He's not saying, oh, I'll save you. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll check in on your deathbed. No, he's with you the whole time. I'm not gonna try to scare somebody out of the kingdom or into the kingdom, he's able to save. So when we're standing before someone on campus or standing before someone in the workplace, we're just, God is able to save. All I got to do is plant the seed and he'll do the rest. He's able to save. And Paul understood that. He understood that preaching is glorious. I just got to release it. I got to unleash the beast. I'll unleash the lion and he'll, he'll, do, he'll know what to do. I don't have to defend the lion. I just need to unleash the truth and it will do its work. In fact, Isaiah 55 says that. It will never return void. The word of God will go forth and do the work. Unleash it and trust the word, not your words. Trust the word. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 20 says, God was in Christ reconciling the word world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What a glorious job. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We can plead. We can say to our friends and family, just be reconciled to God. Please. That's not manipulation or trying to, that's just your passion saying, look, there's only one way. And if you don't get reconciled with God, you'll perish. That's again, is not manipulation. That's truth being leashed, unleashed. Also, it says in Romans 15, 19, in the power of the spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. 
Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very last of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. When you talk to somebody about Jesus, do you think in terms of that, the unfathomable riches? Or you'd be like, hey, welcome to the dull Christianity. All you get is heaven and a miserable life. But you don't need to go to the opposite side and be like, hey, hey, you give your life to Jesus, you'll live your best life now. No, you'll live your best life later in heaven. Because again and again and again, it is worth noting, we lose on this earth. We lose. We'll lose court battles. We'll lose arguments. But we will win on the other side. And that's the hope that we have. That is the good news. Sometimes we think the good news is, is some sort of rich life here on earth. Now, Jesus did say, I'm gonna give you the abundant life. That is true. He gives us the abundant life, but that's the abundant life in the spirit, not in the world. And that's the difference. Colossians 1, 25 and 28 of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from, uh, from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Your desire should not be, oh, I hope that the pastor presents every man in Christ, but that you, your desire should be that everyone I'm in contact with in the church would present them more complete in Christ. That's the vision. That's the goal. That should be your passion. That should what gets you out of bed in the morning. Oh, I just want, if you're in a life group with Mike Pabone, his desire should be, hey, I want everyone in this life group to be complete. You know what that does? It takes the burden off of him to be this fancy, slick leader because all he needs to do and occupy himself with is I hope every person in this room becomes complete in Christ. And then everything you do, every scripture, every book you recommend, everything you do should point towards that, not towards him. We put too much pressure on us as leaders. There's no pressure. The pressure's on the word. And the word is much heavier than you are. It's much more weightier than you are. 1 Timothy 2, 7, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And he's like, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. <laughs> I love that. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 2 Timothy 1, 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Oh, he loved what he did. He knew it was effective. He knew it would change lives. He understood the importance of this calling. And then he also exhorted others to do it. He lived it. He said in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That should be something you wake up with. Your workplace will not be saved with you being silent. It won't. 
Now, that doesn't mean you walk in and just every second you have, you're, you're, you're preaching or you're being preachy. Nobody likes that. But at the appropriate time, as they see your work unto the Lord, they see your work glorifying God, they're like, hmm, he looks trustworthy. She looks trustworthy. Maybe I'm, I'm curious why they're doing such a great job underneath a tyrant boss or an incompetent boss. He never said glorify God under only a competent boss. He said, glorify God no, under your master. It doesn't matter what their character is. That's irrelevant. Well, the only thing that's relevant is you glorifying God. And if the people in your workplace or in your class decide to say, oh, I, I'm curious, I want to know more, that's up to them. You just occupy with glorifying God and he'll occupy himself with saving humanity. God is able to do that. He's not... Weak in that. We don't have to save the planet. He does. He does. We need to occupy ourselves with when somebody does ask or when we feel prompted by the Holy Spirit, we preach in such a way that is the full gospel so that they understand what they're getting themselves into. And Jesus was very clear over and over and over and over and over again. People wanted to follow him because he, he started gaining a a following. I mean, it's kind of, at one point in Christ's journey, there was a sense where I want to follow that guy because it's somewhat cool. And then all of a sudden he started saying things like, well, hey, if you really want to follow me, you got to deny yourself, let the dead bury their own dead, you know, leave your father and mother. I mean, all these things like, whoa, hey, hold on a second. I thought maybe I got the right guy, but maybe I've got the wrong guy and I'll just go on about my business. They need to understand what they're getting themselves into. In fact, 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This is the season to preach the word. A month ago, it was the season. 5,000 years ago, it was still the season. 300 years from now, it will still be the season. In every season, we need to preach the word, no matter if it's popular or not. And really, quite frankly, it was never popular. It never was, and it never will be. Titus 2, 1 and 15 says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Even those who say, oh, hey, look, you don't need to really do this. This is kind of, you need to be tolerant of all the other religions. No, I don't. You need to just say it. Just say it. I, I, I'm, I'm not tolerant of all the religions. What do you think this is? The culture coming into the church saying, okay, this is what I want you to... You think, I think that we think this way. And they get a little knock on the door and they come in here. Hey, John, you know what? Let me just... I, I can help you. I can grow your church. Just if you take out this, 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 this. In fact, if you could just throw away your Bible, you'll grow your church. I mean, and that's the truth. <laughs> and that's what churches are doing today. Perhaps you're a part of one before you came here. Today, there is a famine 
in the land. In fact, it says Amos, Amos, which you don't often read about, Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days are coming. I believe they're already here. When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing the words of the Lord. There's a famine today, and it's not bread. We have plenty to eat. But it's the word of God being preached. That's what we need. There's so much psychology, shallow preaching, politics, social issues, jokes, storytelling, pragmatism, entertainment, seeker-sensitive, administrative-driven churches. I mean, we see that. It doesn't save anyone. It might encourage you for a time, but it doesn't have enough substance to nourish you. We know that. I love what uh, Dr. Abner Chow, he's uh, a New Testament scholar. I love what he says here. We have no idea the depth of inspiration, the preciousness or the preciseness of each word. Every single grammatical choice is deliberate. There are no accidents in scripture. Even the word choice itself was inspired by God. Isn't that great? If we know that the word of God is truly inspired like that, down to the nitty gritty, like like the Holy Spirit decided to use this word, not that word. To not use this word, but to use this word. And that's incredible that he had that much involvement in the writing of scripture. He still used man. He still used us to be a part of that, which is even more glorious when you think about it, and still be inerrant without error. Now you tell me, if the word of God truly is inspired by God and inerrant and truly authoritative, then why don't we preach it? Only fools would read that line and then preach something else. It makes no sense. That is the only logical response to an inerrant word is to preach the word of God, line by line. 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You know, I'm just gonna rattle off some names. These are people that you could get to know over the years that would serve you well. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Hugh Latimer, John Bunyan, John Rogers, Richard Baxter, John Owen, Thomas Manton, he's a Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley, Spurgeon, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. These are men who preached the word and in their day, people's lives radically changed. Revivals broke out because people actually decided, hey, I'm gonna preach the word. Those who are unashamed of the gospel because it truly is the power of God will have revival in their church, have a revival in their workplace, in their ministries. Erwin Lutzer says this, committees are necessary Even more important is a vision and the ability to move the congregation towards the goals of the church. But when push comes to shove, it's the ministry of the word that gives us our greatest impact. 
A church can usually put up with weak administration, which is not our case, <laughs> if it has effective preaching. But there's nothing quite, like, quite as pathetic as people coming to church and returning home without any spiritual food. Charles Spurgeon says, may I beg you carefully to judge every preacher, including myself, not by his gifts, not by his exclusionary powers, <laughs> not by his status in society, not by the respectability of his congregation, not by the prettiness of his church, but by this, does he preach the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. If he does, your sitting under his ministry may prove to you the means of begetting faith in you. But if he does not, you cannot expect God's blessing. Point number one. The mission never stopped in the book of Acts. You might be thinking, oh, when we're done with book of Acts, then we could kind of move on to some maybe more deeper things. This is the deeper things. The mission continued, and it always will. Once we hit Acts 28, and if we go into Mark next or Corinthians or whatever, these themes continue to pop up because this is the bread and butter of the church, the gospel. We never get tired of it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says this, I sometimes wonder that if you do not, you do not get tired of my preaching <laughs> because I do nothing but hammer away on this one nail. With me, it is year after year, none but Jesus. Oh, you great saints, if you have outgrown the need of a sinner's trust in the Lord Jesus, you have outgrown your sins, but you have also outgrown your grace and your saintship has ruined you. We never graduate from grace. We never graduate from the gospel. So let's pick up, <clears throat> excuse me, Acts 13, 13 to 16. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, which is a different Antioch than where they came. Their base was a different Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, which is normally a custom. They would always go to the synagogue first. They preached to the Jews first. And then, of course, then later on, you'll see here to the Gentiles. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said this. Now, I want to just give you a little bit of background to this. I think is important. They traveled from Antioch, their base, which is their missionary base, which we've kind of established, I guess, last week. Then they started going out. They sent out Paul and Barnabas. The Holy Spirit did. And then as they got into uh, Cyprus, they spread across. They exhausted that area. They left about 200 miles across the sea, uh, a journey, and then journeying up to Piscinian Antioch, about 100 miles. And Paul in Galatians, just this one little footnote that he says, he says, if it wasn't for me getting sick, you would have never heard the gospel. So most likely a lot of scholars say that he probably had malaria being in, uh, near the coastal towns. He got sick. 
he had to go through this very hard trek through up the mountains, 3,600 feet to get more higher. Uh, it's true even in the jungle, uh, the mosquitoes are low. As you get above 2,000 feet-ish around, they're less likely to be there and to cause you to be sick. And so that's what Paul did. He got all the way up the mountains to get to higher ground, to get to cooler weather uh, so that he could overcome his fever, most likely. But the gospel was there, and uh, he began to preach in Pisidian Antioch. And I love this, as you look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. it says, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. He actually had to go through a pretty uh, rough terrain, but not only that, but had to go through... Uh, the rapids of this river in that area. And then also as they go through the mountains, it was been, it's been known that the robbers sort of hide between the rocks and as people come at night in the sha- and they're in the shadows, they, they rob uh, the people of their money. And so he says that, he says, I've been in danger with robbers, danger with my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in sea, and dangers from false brethren. He was committed to share the gospel no matter the terrain no matter what came his way. And the first thing he did was go into the synagogue and he most likely was a tradition, I guess, to preach from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema. Uh, Love the Lord your God, right? You know that passage. And then also because Paul was known, he's probably known in that area because he was known to be under the, one of the top teachers, Gamaliel, and so they said, hey, since you're in town, uh, why don't you come up and speak? And Paul's like, it'd be my pleasure <laughs> to take that opportunity. Have you ever been there where it's just like a softball pitch? Where it's like, I mean, God just, I mean, not even a softball. It's just one of those big old bouncy balls. It's like, here you go. And it's like, you know, I don't, I, I, God never gives me an opportunity to share the gospel. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's right in front of you. (laughs) How do you not see that? And so Paul took that as God's sign and his providence to preach the gospel. And Luke here records his, his sermon. And so he says, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out in front, out from it, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised David to be their king concerning whom he have testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Ever since the garden, man sinned and there's been this rebellion and God desired to bring us back into relationship with him. But as you see throughout the Old Testament, the Jews, it was very clear that they had royally messed up and they continued to do that, but God continued to put up with them. In fact, in verse 17, he says that that God chose their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, he's mentioned of Israel. And then you get into the the patristic era where God set up the 
the uh, patriarchal fathers and said, I, in Genesis 12, I, I'm going to promise you that one day through your seed will come someone who will deliver you, Jesus. And he's going to be a blessing to all the nations. And we, as his seed, spiritual seed, become a blessing to the nations. Everywhere we go, we're a blessing. And it's God's promise. You know you are a promise as you get on that airplane and go overseas. You literally can waltz right into Japan or wherever we go, and you can believe, I am the promise of God for this nation. Because he said you are going to be a blessing to all nations. What you'll know a little bit more tonight is the, uh, the, one of the leaders of Jesus' film is coming to speak to us tonight about the unreached places. We always want to hold the nations in our hearts, knowing that this promise is still happening today. It's a fulfillment. Jesus fulfilled it, and the church is fulfilling it day by day. But then you know that they got and uh, they continue to increase and multiply in Egypt, and they were becoming new, too numerous, if you remember in that story in Exodus. So they, Israel was now put into slavery, and then God raised up a deliverer in Moses and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And God continued, it says here in, in Acts 13, that God continued to put up with them. Do you know God puts up with you? Is that offensive? Sometimes we're so much in, oh, God loves us, God loves us. He loves you, but see the strength of his love in that he puts up with you. There, you know, love always precedes discipline. In fact, the reason why he disciplines his children is because he loves. I tell that to my kids all the time. If I don't discipline, the Bible says I hate you. I could just see psychologists screaming and gnawing, gnashing their teeth right now, just don't even know what to do with themselves with that statement. Becoming all crooked. <laughs> so Nehemiah 9.16 to 19 says, but they, our fathers, acted, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen, and they did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you have performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal, molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt. What? How can an inanimate object do that? and committed great blasphemies, you, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. What an amazing, gracious, loving, compassionate, forgiving, merciful God we have. That's incredible. Deuteronomy 131, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you 
just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. Deuteronomy 2.7, for the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings every day through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked a thing. In verse 19, it says, in 40 years in the wilderness, God rose up a new generation. Now there are consequences for sin. Many of them died, right? They died there in the promise, or before they got into the promised land because of their unbelief. And so there is a warning there, but also God has a remnant. He always has a remnant. He always has a people who believe, even in the midst of their unbelief. And from the time that God wiped out the seven nations in Canaan, according to Deuteronomy 7, which it says here, I love that the Bible always checks the Bible. The time from Egypt to the land was 450 years. So then in verse 20, he raises up judges in the land. I mean, Paul's just going through the Old Testament. It's all pointing to Jesus and our need for him. Samuel, the prophet, came that cried out for a king. It was one of the most foolish things Israel did. Does it sound familiar, though? For one year, we cried out for a king. And frankly, we got one. We got a king. I mean, I'm not sure that's what we want. First Samuel 8, 5 to 7, it says, And they said to Samuel, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. We just want to be like, the, like them. We want to be like the world. Oh, it would be better if we can move you out of the way and have an earthly king. Oh, really? But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Doesn't it sound like Romans 1? He gave them over to their wishes. You know, we keep crying out to God for something that's not of God. He'll eventually give it to us. Perhaps quicker than we think. In fact, all prayer gets answered. <laughs> One way or the other, it does. But God then removed Saul and put David in right? Isn't it interesting that even though this man decided to lust after another woman, commit adultery, murder her husband, act insane so that he wouldn't be killed, literally, and God said, he's mine. That guy He's mine more than Saul. Saul didn't even do half the evil that he did. But yet he was known as a man after his own heart. And you find the answer in Psalm 32, we don't have time for it, but Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and Psalm 51. We find out why he was a man after God's own heart. Because he wasn't afraid or ashamed to confess his sin publicly. 
He was so tender towards the Lord. He was in the fight, as we say. He was in the fight. He was in the battle. He didn't let his sin discourage him and uh, allow him to run away from God. But he, he allowed the conviction from the Holy Spirit to run towards God. He was a Peter rather than a Judas. Point number two, the prophets point to Jesus. This is one of my favorite parts. This is going to be really encouraging to you. And I think you'll know without a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. And we could trust every, every single word from the Bible. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, there was a prophecy, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's a Genesis 3. There's a promise that although you sinned, Adam and Eve, I have provision for it. And you want a little taste? I'm going to kill this animal and cover you and your shame with its skins. In other words, they would never be able, the reason why God didn't kill them on the spot is because they were covered with blood from a sacrifice. Never forget that. There is no forgiveness, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood. Your forgiveness doesn't come cheap. All right, we'll pick up here. All right, so 23. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. After Jesus, or after John had proclaimed before his coming, you'll notice all the prophets and all the prophecies before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept on saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whom, of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Accords that in John. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent for those who live in Jerusalem and theirs, their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. And that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken this way using another scripture. From Isaiah 55, I will give you the holy, one, holy and sure blessings of David which was taken from the Septuagint, not in the Hebrew Bible that we have. That's why it's phrased different. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, Psalm 2-7, you will not allow your Holy One, I'm sorry, Psalm 16, you'll not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He died, but Jesus, his descendant, did not. And he was laid among his fathers and underwent decay but for whom God raised did not undergo decay. 
Now, I'm just going to go through the birth to the resurrection. So fasten your seatbelts. I'm just going to give you, I'm going to rattle off these scriptures, but I believe it's going to be really encouraging for you because I want to nail this point home that he is who he says he is. Isaiah 7, 14. So the birth was predicted and fulfilled. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin. You know how sad it is that the Revised Standard Version doesn't have virgin in it? It just says a young woman. They decided to change that. This is back in the day. Get yourself a good Bible version. The NASB is great. It's the one I use. ESV is great. And there's a few others. New King James. But they do change these and twist them. Translations should always go towards the author, not the listener. We're so occupied with the listener. What do they think? Who cares what they think? It matters what God says, right? I mean, it's his word. Who are we to change and twist? If he says in his word, he saves, we shouldn't change it for, for us to say, we save. That's what we're saying, right? Let me help you out. No, no, no. The word doesn't need your help. So it is important for us to get a good translation that will teach us what it says in the original language because it wasn't written in English. So there was a virgin and Mary was that girl. She was a girl, teenager will be with child and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be, born, will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, not Biden's. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Micah 5, 2 speaks about Bethlehem, and that Jesus will be born there, and he was. Four hundred years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just enough time for us to know that we know that we know. No one twisted those scriptures so that they can get what they want out of it and say Jesus just, you know, he just they just twisted the scriptures so. No, 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 no. There was no twisting of any scriptures. Micah was written way before Jesus. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus. And you tell me if this is a coincidence. It wasn't. Messiah also was predicted to ride on a donkey from Zechariah 9.9, and then he fulfilled it in Mark 11. Messiah's prediction of his betrayal and even down to the amount of money of his betrayal. From Psalm 41, 9, Zechariah eleven twelve, and it was fulfilled in the Gospels. Not only that, but John the Baptist was pre- predicted as well to be a forerunner. Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 5, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain of broad valley. 
and the Lord and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then in John 1, 9, 19 to 23, it was very clear. Verse 26, Paul is saying this message of salvation has been sent out. In other words, it's clear. And I love that, you know, maybe you're a skeptic and you might say something along the lines of, and I think it's important to ask this, if Jesus was indeed the Messiah, then why did the Jews kill him? Simple. Hard hearts. It's always been the problem. They ignored the word of God. It's not a lack of evidence that anyone would perish. It's a hard heart. It's because they were ignorant of the word of God. Matthew twenty two twenty nine 29 says, but Jesus answered them and said, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. It says in John five thirty nine, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify of me. In verse 28, you might think, well, maybe this murder canceled the plans of Jesus. Again, it did not. Because these prophecies were fulfilled. One by one by one by one by one. In fact, it says in Isaiah 53, 3, it says, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like the one whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This was a prophecy that he wasn't going to be welcomed. In fact, in John 1.11, it says no one received him. No one really cared to. I mean, there's no room in the inn. Luke 2.7. Psalm 69.4, those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. This wasn't Jesus speaking. This was a prophecy. Those who would destroy me are powerful being wrongfully my enemies. And then John 15, 25, he said, he said, but they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Don't you love that? If you're doubting this morning, this will increase your faith because you're hearing the word about Jesus. Verse 29, the crucifixion was also prophesied and fulfilled. And I'm just going to rattle this off. I don't have time to go through every scripture, but I'm just going to rattle the scripture verse off and just touch on a paraphrase here. Psalm 109.25, I have become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their head. Matthew 27, those passing by, they wag their heads. Psalm 22.17, the crowds would stare at them. Luke 23, they were staring at him. Psalm twenty two eighteen soldiers would divide his clothing. John 19, they casted lots to see who would get his clothes. Psalm 69, 21, predicted that he would give vinegar and gall for his thirst. Matthew 27, they tried to give him drink full of vinegar. Psalm 22, but my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Matthew 27 was fulfilled, exact quote, word for word. Psalm 31, 5, in your hand I commit my spirit. Luke 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 34, 20, none of his bones were broken. John 19, the soldiers did not break any one of his bones. Zechariah 12, 10, they foretold the piercing of his side. 
In John 19, 34, they looked on him and they pierced his side. <laughs> you have to be a fool not to see this. I, I just, you have to be the hard-hearted person on the planet and not see this. It is clear that the word of God is true. Jesus is who he said he is. This isn't talking about some other mysterious guy to come. He already came as a lamb. And he's coming back as a lion to literally devour his enemies and shred them apart. Do you ever see a lion take a piece of meat? He's not a lamb just petting the piece of meat. He devours it. Have you ever seen on National Geographic of just like, they don't show lambs going after the enemy and just like trampling on them and they just tumble in the weeds. You see a lion and he devours his enemy. That's what he's going to do when he comes back. He will literally annihilate his enemies. It is done. It is game over when he comes. And Christ's burial was also predicted and fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 9 says, His grace was assigned to wick with wicked men, yet, I love this, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. God vindicated him even in his burial. You couldn't put him on the heap with all the other dead bodies, criminals. God had a special place for him because there was no deceit in his mouth. He was perfect. Verse 30 Christ's resurrection predicted and fulfilled. Psalm 2.7, Isaiah 55.3, and Psalm 16.10, which we've just read, all predicted his resurrection. Now, it doesn't say resurrection in there. Now, you have to understand also that the Jews did not have this form of punishment back in the Old Testament. It was a Roman-invented, horrific, sadistic punishment that they didn't understand, even though in Numbers parallels to John where it says they lifted up the Son of Man just like they lifted up the bronze snake in the desert. There was allusions to it in that sense, but they didn't understand. They couldn't put it all together, which tells you that you could be saved without knowing the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of the Christian life. You just need to believe. And I love that in God's grace, that's, how he made it. But he gave us the benefits of David. Even though David died, there's the benefits of the resurrection. And you know what that is? It's the forgiveness of sins. And then he appeared to many. In fact, it says here, and he appeared to more than 500. 1 Corinthians 15, 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And the last point this morning, I know it's a little long, but I think it's worth it to put confidence in the people of God. Last part here, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through his forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. What a great blessing. What a breath of fresh air for those under the law and the bondage of it. Therefore, take heed so that the, the things spoken in of in the prophets may not come upon you. And here's the warning. So the last point is that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection points to our salvation. 
But it also warns us from Habakkuk 1.5, Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Now, those are on cute mugs in the Christian bookstore. But nobody wants to ever print the other part of that passage, which I'll read in a second. <laughs> Lies always sell, don't they? Jo- Job 9.2, here's the question that we need to answer, is how can a man be right before God? That is the question of question, questions, Job 9.2. Certainly, we can't be freed from the law by fulfilling the law. You can't do that. We can't be saved by the law. Galatians 3.10, for as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. You want to continue to be under a curse? Every man on this planet is born into a curse. But cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In other words, you violate one sin You might be the most perfect guy on the planet and just violate one sin, even a respectable sin, like you had one lazy day in your life out of 80 years, and that would be damnable to hell. If you've gossiped just one time, had one lustful thought, you're done. It's game over. You're cursed. So we need a remedy. Certainly someone beyond ourselves. So verse 38 and 39 speaks of that, but also gives us a great warning for those who would reject this amazing message. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That is the gospel, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, and he did that. Colossians 2.13 and 14, when you were dead in your transgressions and and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile towards us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. In Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For it says in Romans 3.20 and 22, it says that the law comes, the knowledge of sin. It's the only purpose of the law. It's just to show us how wretched we are. And you got to be careful of those respectable sins. Many are not really concerned about their sin because they haven't done the big ones. They haven't murdered. They haven't really physically committed adultery. They haven't, you know, they haven't done any big sins. They haven't really stolen anything in their life other than maybe use the stapler for their own personal purposes at the workplace. Maybe they borrowed a paper clip. But the respectable sins the ones that you just slander someone and you don't even know about it. Talk somebody about someone behind their back and didn't think, you thought you justified it somehow. You took a third glance and you didn't think, hey, at least I didn't look at porn. They're respectable because no one really knows and no one really cares, but God does. 
He cares. Well, let me just read you the rest of Habakkuk 4 as we close. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4 says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, and you do not save. Habakkuk was crying out to God because these people had no more righteousness in them. They had no more virtue in Israel. And God was about to judge them, say, it's coming, whether you like it or not. It's just, it's going to come. And he's like, no, this can't happen. And so verse 5, Paul quotes verse 5, and people are, they know, they know the scriptures. This isn't some Gentile speech. This is a Jewish speech. They knew this passage. He didn't need to quote all of it. And he says, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And then the next line. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who marched through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with, it, with themselves. Interesting. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They will fly like an evil swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. They hoard of faces, their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. This is speaking of God raising up Israel's enemies to judge them. And they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God, small g. The same is going to happen here. It's already here. It's here. This is not some far away judgment. It is right here. God's given us over. You could kiss the days goodbye with uh, any sort of reasoning with the unsaved. They are deluded. They're more deluded than ever before. There's no discourse. Whatever they want, whatever they define, is what they define. I think this is interesting. Thomas Watson says this, Puritan says, all the danger is when the world gets into the heart. The water is useful for sailing of a ship. All the danger is when the water gets into the ship. So fear is when the world gets into the heart. I believe we let the water in. Not just into this country, but into the church. I think the water's in the church, guys, if you haven't noticed. Just recently, we saw a very prominent couple that's on HGTV was interviewed by Oprah. And instead of preaching the gospel and just 
being forthright about their faith because they began to talk about their faith. The husband said, I don't read the Bible because I'm not, I really don't understand the Bible. I don't really like reading the Bible, but I experience God when I'm milking, milking cows and when I'm doing demo work. What in the world is that? How is that going to save anyone? We're going to go milk a cow and say, God, you're alive? You're going to save me from my sin? We've let the water in. We've let the water in. Not only that, but just recently there was a man who killed Asian massage uh, masseuses in a massage parlor in Georgia in the world and our politicians are calling it racism frankly it's not racism it's sin there's nothing to do with racism there's nothing to do with a normal male Christian who lusts who frequented those places and wanted to eliminate temptation so he thought in his own foolishness that if I kill them they'll be gone only to realize there's millions of other massage parlors in the country. You can't just eliminate your temptation by killing. And our foolish politicians want to capitalize that and say, our culture really, not even politicians, our culture say this is racism. No, you will not redefine sin. Sin is sin. This isn't racism. This is sin. This is somebody deciding to ruin their life, not understand the gospel, not even finding forgiveness. There's so much from this cultural story that this man never found forgiveness in Christ. He took matters in his own hands. He understood the law, but he understood He thought that he could just eliminate sin from the earth by using a gun. That's sick. It's wrong. And I I think that we can't allow the culture to redefine because we can hide behind the racial talk but if any newscaster had any sense they would say the reason why this happened is because of sin and the only way out is through Jesus Christ the only hope that we have in this country is through Christ Psalm 2.12 says, Do homage to the Son. Kiss the Son, and He will not become angry. Give your lives to Him, and He will not unleash His wrath towards you, for His wrath may soon be kindled, and we already know it is. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. And then Hebrews 2.1-3, For this reason we must pay it close, closer attention to what we have heard even this morning so that we do not drift away from it. 
For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, well, then how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is only one way, and that's through Christ. And he's provided that for every person in this room. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to quote one last man, commentator, biblical scholar. And I want, to, I want you to know something, and I want you to understand something so important right now, that every person in this room matters that every person in this room is a carrier of the gospel. You do not have to be some sort of influence, influencer in this world. In fact, don't try to be that because we know even with this HGTV couple, it's foolishness. Finally, when they get to the top, they disappoint. They leave the world wanting. To who? To impress some talk show host who's going to go to hell? That's foolishness. It is a myth to think that because I am somebody famous or well-known or because I am slick or clever or because I package my little presentation in lingo and terminology that's kind of at the core of contemporary vernacular that somehow this influences people. You know what gets people saved? Not that kind of influence. What gets people saved is a recognition of who Jesus Christ is and an honest evaluation of their condition and a need for a savior, which you just demonstrated today. But what we need is not more people trying to influence society. We need more people preaching the gospel because it's confrontation, not influence, that saves souls. Where do we put our hope in as believers? And where do we put our confidence in in preachers of the gospel? That's the question. I'm excited about our new move. But I need an army. I need people who will own this and give their lives to this purpose. And I don't care who walks through those doors, they will meet Jesus Christ and they will meet a family who has died, and they will meet bold people who will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ until he returns. So Father, we we ask you for that kind of belief this morning, that we would believe the truth of Jesus Christ. We would trust you. We would believe. We would love the truth. We would honor the truth. We would pay homage to the Son, to you. 